Welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. Your opposable thumb means nothing. This is what we want to be. We don't want to be Americans or Germans or English. We want to be extra environmentalists. Always feel wherever you go that you are a stranger. The outsider, the one looking in. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. During the 20th century, humans have created a global market for cheaply priced commodities of corn, wheat, soybeans, and rice. We pump a plethora of corn from the earth in the same way we pump barrels of oil. To imagine how it can continue, countries like the United States, along with its vision of a never-ending technological progress, are creating genetically modified organisms, or GMOs, in an attempt to keep the agribusiness as usual moving forward. Companies like Monsanto are pouring research dollars into GMOs so that they become more common and less expensive than any other food product on our shelves. The debate over the use of genetically modified foods in our society hits at the root of two contrasting ideas of the future of our global food system. Technological progress and the idea that humans can engineer their own ecosystem stands in support of these types of foods. In today's show, the second part of our series of three dispatches from the most recent slow money gathering in Louisville, Kentucky, we hear from many of the leading thinkers in the movement for creating sustainable food systems. In the first half of today's episode, you'll hear from a town hall meeting on food with Patrick Holden, founding director of the Sustainable Food Trust, Richard McCarthy, executive director of Slow Food USA, Judy Wicks, founder of the Business Alliance for Local Living Economies in the White Dog Cafe, and Preston Coral, the co-founder of the Marksbury Farm Market. Then we'll hear about a youth perspective on land reform from Severin, Vaughn, Tarsher, Fleming, and the importance of enabling the transition of land to a generation that's saddled by debt, but wants to farm. Then we'll hear from a panel on GMOs covering the latest research that challenges industry claims. Then in the second half of the show, you'll hear a key selection from Vandana Shiva's keynote lecture on the roots of a psychology and industry of war embedded in our means of producing food. This is The Extra Environmentalist. I'm Seth Moserkatz. And I'm Justin Ritchie, and this is episode number 85. I'm Patrick Holden. I'm also a farmer in West Wales. And for me, the importance of my relationship with the farm has given me a lot of insights into the issue of local and global. Because it seems to me that the farm is like a cell 
of the food system. And if we can understand the small, then we can understand the whole, because the laws of the universe are such that everything is connected. And the food system, you could think of as like an enormous organism, which is the sum of its collective parts, the cells. And if we get the cells healthy, then the food system as a whole can be healthy. So I think that the two are connected, but one should start with the local. So on my farm, what I've been trying to do for all these years is to minimize my use of non-renewable external inputs, to practice the law of return, the recycling of nutrients, to build soil fertility, to try to integrate biodiversity with food production. Essentially, what I've been trying to do is to explore on my own farm whether the sustainable cell can be viable. And my news really, literally right up to date, is that it's very difficult if you're trying to do the right thing by sustainable principles to make an economic case for it. And the reason for that is because of the absence of true cost accounting. And true cost accounting is a theme that my new organization, the Sustainable Food Trust, is championing on the theme of true cost accounting, which the way I would describe it is the way in which both the positive and the negative consequences of different farming and food systems are not factored into the costs that either farmers are charged or benefits they receive or the price that we pay for our food. And as a result, we've got a distorted economic system where doing the right thing if you're a farmer means that you are less profitable or not profitable at all, and doing the wrong thing that's the best business case. So you can't blame the farmers or the food companies of America or any other place in the world for following the best business case, because otherwise they go out of business unless they're slightly mad or an early adopter or have a day job like me. And we, the Sustainable Food Trust, are trying to do something about that with others. This is not us doing all this, by identifying, categorizing, and quantifying both the extent and the range of different externalities, as economists call them, arising from different farming and food systems. So to take an example, work has been done on assessing the impact of nitrogen fertilizer. If a farmer buys a kilogram of nitrogen fertilizer, it probably costs about a dollar. Put the fertilizer on the land and you get three dollars of return. Don't quote me on those exact figures, but that's the gist of it. So there's a good business case for using nitrogen fertilizer. But of course, nitrogen fertilizer kills off soil bacteria, accelerates the oxidization of organic matter, Induces unhealthy growth of crops, which results in the need for pesticides, fungicides, herbicides, and so on and so on. And the European Union have done some assessment of the negative externalities arising from nitrogen fertilizer, including the health and environmental damage, pollution, that sort of thing. They calculated that at the very minimum, if you're being ultra-conservative, it's $3 per kilo. But if you add all the possible health externalities, it's probably more like 10 so in other words, there would be no business case for using nitrogen fertilizer, which is probably the single biggest intervention of intensive agriculture, which has caused all the problems we've got into, if you costed or charged the farmers in the form of a tax, which was also mentioned, the cost of the damage that they're doing to the environment and public health. That's what we need. I'm Judy Wicks. I thought I'd tell a defining story that really explained my work. There was a farmer who supplied the White Dog Cafe with organic vegetables. That's my business in Philadelphia, beginning in about 1986. And he once said to me that successful farming is the balance between the masculine and the feminine, between efficiency and nurturing. And it got me thinking about how the industrial agricultural business is all about efficiency and not about nurturing. It's totally out of balance. And when I heard about the factory farming of pigs in 1998, I was horrified to find that these mother pigs are kept in these tiny stalls where they can't 
take a step forward or backward or turn around. And I realized that my own business must be selling this pork because unless you know otherwise, that's where the pork comes from in this country. So I finally just walked into the kitchen and said, we have to take all the pork off the menu, the bacon, the pork chops, the ham, that we cannot be a part of this system. And we went about looking for sources for pastured pork and found them. And then I found out about the, the plight of the cow and how cows are herbivores and are supposed to eat grass. So we found sources of grass-fed beef and, of course, for pastured chicken and eggs. And then I finally said, well, we have a, a cruelty-free menu. All of our animal products come from small family farms where the animals are treated with respect and are nurtured. This is going to be our market niche. This is our competitive advantage. And then I thought to myself, well, Judy, if you really do care about those pigs, if you really do care about the small farmers that are being driven out of business, if you really care about the environmental damage where there's all this manure and 10,000 pigs in one barn going into the waters, and if you really care about the consumers eating this meat full of antibiotics and hormones, then rather than keep this as your competitive advantage, you'll share this information of your sourcing with your competitors. So that was a real turning point in my life, and everything changed really after that because I moved from a competitive business person, a good business person, thinking that my goal was to have the best practices within my company, to realizing that there is no such thing as one sustainable business, but we can only be part of a sustainable system, and that we have to cooperate in order to build that system. So... So I started a, a nonprofit organization called Fair Food and began putting 20% of my profits into Fair Food. And the first assignment was to go around to the other restaurants in town and give them a list of the suppliers that we had developed over years of hard work, where we got all of our farm products, with the phone numbers and a list of supplies and so on, which turned into eventually a local food guide. And since that time, that was like 14 or 15 years ago, Fair Food has grown, has a year-round farm stand, open seven days a week, representing about 100 different producers. And so I was really able to grow the network that supplied the White Dog Cafe into a much larger network of farmers of all different sizes. And I feel that this need to transform our economy from one that's life-destroying to life giving really begins with the awakening of the heart of the entrepreneur and the investor and the consumer as well. So my work now through my book, uh, Good Morning, Beautiful Business, and through Bali is really to awaken the heart and to make decisions with compassion. So thank you. Richard. Thank you, Sarah. Uh, My name is Richard McCarthy. I'm executive director for Slow Food in the United States. I'm proud to be associated with and representative of the world's largest civil society expression for food sovereignty, for the commitment and the vision that we could live in a world where food is good, clean, and fair for all. Food is this cultural common denominator that could begin to grow a healthy relationship between commerce and community that could become the social space where we rekindle what is our shared history, our shared community, a different political culture, a small p political culture around something we have in common. We knew we were out of step with the dominant paradigm of life and commerce in America, which was the audacity to believe that food is not just fuel, but that food is community, food is the future, food is each other. And so two years ago, I left my sort of beloved food shed of deepest Louisiana for Brooklyn to head up Slow Food USA. 
and to find that wormhole in the universe that food does between the libertarian left and the libertarian right, that safe haven between joy and justice, and to try and rekindle some of the ideas of these incredible nodes, the 175 chapters of slow food communities around the country, as fulcrum for really that strange space between alternative philanthropy, grassroots philanthropy, and alternative investment. And that is what local slow food communities do. The other two areas that I have rekindled the national slow food community around is to really invest deeply in school gardens in order to grow the next generation of kids who love food. If we're gonna address the chronic disease issues, it's not gonna come out of badgering children not to eat certain food. It's gonna be creating their leadership, their autonomy to begin to love good food because they know it, because they grow it, so that they can begin to maneuver these difficult decisions that they face in the marketplace. The other, is to address an issue that I, of course, been running away from most of my life, being a, a lifelong vegetarian, is the issue of meat. And we have embraced the idea of slow meat, a campaign for better meat and less, a safe space to pull together vegetarians like me with ranchers and butchers and chefs and consumers and advocates and policy advocates in order to regrow our local food economies and communities around a just and humane raising of animals to really address the tyranny of cheap food and the role that meat plays in that tyranny and how we are trapped in this culture of confinement that confines rural communities, it confines animals, it confines our biodiversity, and it confines our taste. And I guess at the end of the day, the exciting thing for me is that we might even be able to pull together the paleos and the angry vegans to actually talk. <laughs> because they are freeing us up from the idea, that state idea that a meal involves a hunk of protein, anonymous hunk of protein, surrounded by a supporting cast of characters known as vegetables, or in Washington DC talk, specialty crops. <laughs> that we maybe can reorder the role of meat in our diet, where it is flavor, not just focus, and where through readdressing the scale and nature of how we organize meat in our economy, that we can begin to regrow our local communities and our local regions around better meat and less. And of course, in our slow food fashion, it's around pleasure and taste and balancing that pleasure and taste with responsibility because we have exported this horrible meat economy around the world and we need to take ownership over it to change it. Thank you. So I think we've got to sort out this issue of identifying where the real costs need to be factored into the equation. So I think the absence of true cost accounting and putting a proper price on things and taxing wherever the source is, the practices which cause environmental damage or public health damage, which is probably the biggest single externality, and rewarding farmers who create jobs. I mean, interestingly, is a job a positive or a negative externality? 
Because in the present economic system, if you reduce the number of people working on your farm or in your processing business, you're going to make more money. So effectively, it's treated as something that you want to get rid of, employment. Whereas, in fact, if we create a job, that's a positive externality. We need to find ways of factoring that into the equation. If you go back to my nitrogen example, if we taxed nitrogen in proportion to the damage done, that would be transformative. And if we could find these little solutions and put them into the farm bill and sort out where things are really distorting the present food system to such an extent that if you had a firm of auditors assessing it, they would declare it fraudulent. It's almost as bad as that. Then we could create the conditions where all the stories that we've just heard would become mainstream, because at the moment it's only people who've got brilliant entrepreneurial flair, who've got a day job, or who have just created CSAs where you can sort of hang in there in this very hostile economic environment. But I think if we want transformative change, we have to deal with the, the nettle of this distortion in the economics of food and farming. And it won't be easy to do, because as Wendell said in the last session, food is too cheap and it needs to become more expensive and that's very politically unattractive to uh, introduce policies which will apparently put the cost of food up. Judy? Well, in thinking about this interplay between small and large, I was thinking about how E.F. Schumacher once said that we need to pursue small scale on a large scale and that we need to have unity and coordination nationally and even globally in order to do this. But that doesn't mean growing our enterprises larger and larger. That means, you know, spreading our models rather than our brands. And so as an entrepreneur, I think about growth and that really begins in some ways with the entrepreneur instead of growing the companies bigger and bigger and bigger and becoming global in size. You know, I think of chain stores and national brands and whatnot as being like invasive species. They go into other people's communities and smother out the local businesses there. So how does nature grow? Well, nature grows in a place, in an ecosystem. And I believe that's how we entrepreneurs can also grow. We can grow deeper in our place, as nature does, to become more diverse, more complex, and more adaptive to the needs of our own ecosystem, our own community. So instead of starting a chain, an entrepreneur can look to see, well, what does my community need? And start that business. So I feel like that's the way we need to reimagine a growth as entrepreneurs in this new economy. (laughs) You know, I, I think that consumers are obviously the key here. Nobody in the food world is successful or unsuccessful except by the will of the consumer and and the mass of people. And folks make decisions in food just like anything else for the same reasons that they do otherwise for whatever unique combination of selfishness and altruism that they're dealing with. That has to do with what they feel about what's going to happen to their health, how it impacts the economy around them. All these things impact the way people make decisions and the ability for them to self-determine their own future. Okay, Richard. One thing that really comes to mind that, that is unexpected in the, the rise of true cost accounting in discourse in America has been the convergence of the locavore food conversation with public health and recognizing the return on our investment is generation of chronic diseases and how that has somehow squeaked into the farm bill with, as Shelley Pinnigree described, the SNAP incentive success, the $100 million for SNAP incentives. What is so funny about that is that that grew out of the 
allegedly hyper-elitist farmer's market movement that was all about vertical garnish and exotic heirloom produce. And actually what it grew out of was farmer's markets are the visible expression of a new social contract between supply and demand, between urban and rural, in a public space where actually generations are beginning to figure out what does it mean to be civically engaged and invested and maybe sharing in some of the risk. The risk for a small farmer to take on holding onto the product all the way to the point of sale, which is terrifying and high risk. And it is also rewarded. And similarly, the vulnerable consumer who does not have the, the bandwidth to take risk figuring out what to do with this kohlrabi and all these peculiar things they've never seen before. <laughs> and the fact that the incentive campaigns, the double up food bucks, market match, all of these are mechanisms, small scale mechanisms to reward that risk. And I think as we begin to recognize that shared risk, we begin to weave together a new social contract which can go to scale. It is not obsessed with scale, but it is grown through the shared experiences in local communities. Can I just pick sure. up? Just to pick up the point about public health, we're having a discussion now with, which is involving our UK chief medical officer about the impact of agriculture and food systems on public health. And the categories that we're looking at are antibiotics resistance and the damage that that's causing through people dying and through the acquisition of bacterial resistance to antibiotics. Obesity and diabetes, which it now has a man called Martin Blazer who's written a book called Missing Microbes, where he's shown that there is a direct link between the use of prescribed antibiotics and the emerging obesity epidemic in children in the US, and endocrine disrupting chemicals. And if you just add those three areas together, plus eating the wrong kind of meat, because grass-fed cows can save the planet, I believe. Obviously, I would say that. <laughs> and also, grass-fed meat is different in the composition of omega-3 and 6 fatty acids in a positive way. So there's the issue of aligning one's diet to the outcomes of sustainable agriculture and being healthier as a consequence. But if you put the costs into the equation just of the damage which is being done to public health, if we just addressed those and made the links, they would correct many of the distortions which are driving agriculture in the wrong direction at the moment. Let me leave you with the thought, please do not ever buy again boneless, skinless chicken breast. It is... It is tasteless. It is the worst kind of labor. The people who are paid the least are producing them a piece of meat that is so un outrageously priced. It does not begin to reflect what it's worth. And if you get learn to eat chicken with the bone in, it'll be more flavorful. You'll slow down. You won't eat as much. It will change your life. <laughs> Thank you. Any more? And we'll talk. I heard uh, Willis Harmon, uh, founder of the World Business Academy, once say that he felt like all businesses should have education as a product. And I think that's true. And at the White Dog, I used to say that I use good food to lure innocent customers into social activism. <laughs> that's what we did. We, we were kind of a hub for information. We had table talks with meals on issues of public concern. We took tours of people out to see the farms, where our food comes from, and took them on solar house tours and tours to prisons, to the prison garden, where we talked to the inmates about how gardening helped to heal them. There's so many ways that entrepreneurs can educate about food and about society and culture.
You've been listening to a town hall meeting on food with Patrick Holden, Richard McCarthy, Judy Wicks, and Preston Coral. And next up, we'll hear about the potential for land reform from a youth perspective on farming. I'm here to provide testimony from the young farmers end of this movement, which has been a role that I've been doing now for seven years. And and thank you to Slow Money for making a farmer price for a fancy place to put our heads for a few days. Many young people who are plunging their bodies into the soil and their life into this work stop having any extra money for about 10 years. So all of us who are in the kind of cultural institution and thinking world need to kind of acknowledge, respect, and then accommodate that very, very real financial precarity that this next generation is taking. So thank you. So this is the protagonist I'm here to tell you about, the young farmer out with one foot in nature and one foot in the economy taking a stand to do this work that has to be done and, you know, policy and markets and all these things we've been hearing about are obviously a big part of it, but so are our fingers and our hands in the land. So never think of saying just farming. This is the work that I've been working on. This is where the talk is coming from, is the experience of being inside this movement of young farmers. Mixing, documenting, celebrating, advocating for their success on the land and building this new economy that we all would like to eat from. If you're considering farming or if you haven't considered farming or if there's a person in your family who hasn't considered farming but you think they might be inclined in that direction, I would urge you please to point us in the direction of each other. So this is all a hopeful narrative everyone beg, borrowing, and stealing their way to some opportunity, some secure land tenure to be able to invest their life in the soil and its health and to the community around them. But of course, they're not buying. They're beg, borrowing, and stealing. And so as we're looking at the structural obstacle that's faced by many, 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 many of my people in this community, we're running against this issue. So Obviously, we have to remember that this land was originally stolen, and it is now increasingly concentrated and concentrating in ownership. The value of the land that we are talking about right here, this 400 million acres, is about equal to how much my generation has in student loan debt. So if you like gave us a jubilee and then I gave us a coupon for our jubilee, then we could buy back the land that Jefferson stole from Native Americans with debt from France to provide for his posterity the benefits of freedom. So, you know, that's a big project. And we're gonna need your help. So 400 million acres is a number that you, I hope you will hear it a lot, because I think we've got to really cope with the grand scale of this transition that we're facing, this inflection point. So what am I talking about 400 million acres? That's how much land will change ownership in the next 20 years. As these aforementioned older farmers, it's not their fault, they just get gray hair, and are passing that stewardship job on. And so we're saying, okay, we need more farmers on the land, we need more care, we need more diversity, we need more regional economies, we need more bodies and brains and businesses out there doing this work. Well, we need a lot of them. 
and we need them fast. So that 400 million acres happens to be also, you know, as I mentioned, the size of the Louisiana Purchase, which was highly contentious in its time. So this should be also highly contentious. So we face that problem. The reaction, of course, is to have a real structural analysis. And of course, we've benefited from our elders in this, the ecology movement and the long-term thinking of our elders like Wes Jackson, who I'm really thrilled is on the board of Agrarian Trust. And he explains to us, it's very clear, we build our institutions on this premise, on this gift, on this stolen gift. And now we need to change our institutions. So in looking at some institutions that we might change into, I started studying some of these land reform projects of our history. This is a project not pilgrimage, but yeah, pilgrimage. I asked Vandana how to pronounce it. It's Vinoba Bave. And he was the walking state of India who, right after the liberation of India, started to walk around barefoot, followed by followers, with an entreaty for the landowners to gift their land, to gift their land to the village, so that the village and the community would own the land together and it would be farmed to provide for local use for the Gandhian decentralized economy. Production by the masses, not mass production. So that was uh, in 1951. Four million acres were gifted. So it's not insignificant. He said, there is a tide in the affairs of men. That was the phrase that Vinoba used, quoting Shakespeare. Here's another example. This comes from a really wonderful book of land reform reader published by Rodale back in the days. We went from Vinoba, now we're going to Danuba. This is like some kind of code, not lexicon. This is a study done by Walter Goldschmidt, who is a rural sociologist, looking at two different towns in California, both in the Central Valley, both producing about the same value and kinds of foods, vegetables predominantly, and looking at the difference in tenure between those towns and what were the difference in the outcomes in terms of civic life, education, the quality of the infrastructure, the health of the children, et cetera, et cetera. And in Danuba, the land was owned predominantly by absentee loaners and managed by managers. And in Arwinda, it was managed predominantly by families who were also owners. And of course, the findings were starkly describable in sociologist terms, and the quality of life was far better in the town of local ownership. This report was suppressed by the USDA, which had funded it, and actually the department, which was the Agricultural Economics Department, was shut down. We don't look for what we don't want to see, I guess. Again, another funny word, ejido. This is a community-owned land model in Mexico that's based on the model of the Aztecs, where the community owns the land, and the land is for the community to grow food on. Are you getting a theme? We have a lot of these commons management schemes that are in present and in past the predominant pattern for sustainable human settlement on this planet. So, you know, while many of us young farmers may look like new pioneers, and I'm talking about, you know, the Louisiana Purchase, in fact, it's kind of a longer tale of history that can bring us some of the insight about this project for humanity to figure out, which is how do we build an economy that feeds and fits our ecology? And so the commons becomes this place to 
orient ourselves. This is the intertidal zone. This is where the little fishes and little shrimpies and little crabs are feeding on the substrate between the, the salt and the river, between the water and the land. Obviously, the nursery for the Young Farmers Movement is in the ex existing organic movement. All of us trucking around from farm to farm across the coast. I mean, it's the most national movement. You run into everyone everywhere because they're learning from the best and committed to you know, major amounts of hoboism as a result. And incubating here in these farms, in this land that, of course, those farmers are also retiring. So that land also needs to be kept in organic stewardship. And of course, here, even in the United States, we have, again, this 400 million acres. It's almost like they invented this to be his talk. But this is how much federal land we have that we manage as a commons. Not only is our fishery managed, but so are our federal lands. So the proposal that we are making is to take on one little part of this land transition project and build a model that reflects kind of our highest knowledge of a community-based food system. And bringing the wisdom of the CSA, which essentially is a truce, a truce between the stakeholders, a truce between the entering farmer and the exiting farmer, a truce between the generations. Or in the case of a CSA, you know, a truce between the customer and the producer. So what would it look like if we were to design an institution with the land's best interest in mind? And what would it look like for the steward who is best able to steward that land? And we have done a bunch of our study groups about that, and we thought about it a lot. And then I went across to France, because I'd heard this rumor that they had figured out this model, fired by Vinoba and inspired by the Boudin movement and inspired by the CSA movement, a movement in France called Terre de Lien, which is now seven years old, uh, controls 53 farms, and that's 2,000 hectares of land, permanently organic, where the stewards of that land have a lifetime lease, all the security and benefits of ownership without the cost. And that happens because the land is owned as a community. It's a community ownership model. And that land has then become a commons. It's become a commons for food, for food security. So here we are marching in to this project with wonderful partners, building on an incredible legacy of work in the new economy world from the Schumacher Center for New Economics, which is its mother host, and with the Sustainable Economies Law Center, who are practicing law in the sharing economy and working a lot in worker-owned co-ops, to form this initiative. And it's a big project. You think about, again, this commons, this, this substrate of life in this intertidal zone, this tide that's changing, that needs to change. How do we connect these little fish, this incredible potential that exists in the Young Farmers Movement, with the various parties who we are going to need to partner with, and we are really needing to partner with? With the mothers, with the grandmothers, with the widows of farmers, many times widows of farmers who died of cancer, with landowners, absentee landowners, heirs of landowners who are now moved to cities and think, oh gosh, what a complicated family I have. I can't manage to make a decision about that land. With institutional landowners, with churches, so much progress in the Green Seminary movement. And of course, also hopefully with land gifters. 
and we've seen that amazing progress that was made. So that's the kind of story that we're working on and that we hope we will be adding to the many different options. The big borrow and steal is going to be continuing <laughs> as young farmers are working in that place to figure out the compromise, the marginal land, the underused land, you know, a handshake deal to get at that land. But I think we have to really confront a wide range of options as we look at what it takes to keep these communities food secure in the future. And that was Severin von Tarschner Fleming talking about the youth perspective on land reform. Next up, we turn to a panel on GMOs with alternative perspectives to the industry viewpoint on genetically engineered crops. The very word GMO is, of course, a result of the fact that when genetically engineered organisms started to get commercialized, people started to respond with anxiety. And so the word GMO was created, genetically modified. And you are all genetic modifications of your parents. You're not identical to your parents. And that's how they say this has always been around. But a genetically engineered organism is unlike any organism that has existed prior to genetic engineering in two very, very significant ways. The first is that genetic engineering, based on recombinant DNA, allows you to introduce genes that don't belong to that organism and that plant and that food. And because it's not a very reliable technology, it's achieved by shooting genes into existing cells of plants which have been bred conventionally by farmers or by public breeders. The unreliability requires an addition of a second gene, which is called an antibiotic resistance marker. Basically, the cells are in a Petri dish. You're shooting with a gene gun. Some absorb, some don't absorb. So they pour antibiotics, which kills the cells that did not absorb the gene because it doesn't have the antibiotic resistance marker. And antibiotic resistance markers are required because the technology is unreliable. If I save seeds from our traditional crops, I don't have to guess whether the rice will give me rice. And by and large, in societies like ours, the germination tests at the traditional level are so reliable, because why would farmers want to destroy their own food crop? But that's not all. There's a third gene added. Because like when you have an organ transplant, there's a tendency for the body to reject the introduced organ. So all kinds of hormones are given. In the case of genetic engineering, a viral promoter is added, and you, these are super virulent viruses. So every genetically engineered food or seed has a toxic gene for either a Bt toxin, which is supposed to control pests, or a herbicide tolerance gene, like Roundup Ready resistance. Then you have the antibiotic resistance marker, and third, you have the viral promoters. This mix of genes hasn't been assessed for safety. In fact, in this country, there is no assessment at all. There's no requirement. The laws were killed. 
But there's a second distinctiveness. Before genetic engineering, you could not patent a plant. With genetic engineering, the companies say, we have invented something new, and therefore we are the makers, the owners, creators. This, of course, is so inconsistent with the other argument being used that a genetically engineered organism is like a non-genetically engineered organism, an assumption called substantial equivalence that was totally cooked up after the Earth Summit in 1992 because in the Convention on Biological Diversity, we managed to put in clauses requiring governments to assess the impact of genetically engineered organisms on biodiversity, on health on the conditions of farmers. So President Bush senior walked out of Rio, of the Earth Summit saying, I won't sign this treaty. Came back and dictated to his vice president who could not spell potato. <laughs> he dictated substantial equivalence. And that then became the assumption, which is a policy of don't look, don't see, don't find. But it's also a policy of what I call ontological schizophrenia when it comes to owning the seed to collect royalties from farmers and to prohibit farmers from saving seeds or having seeds, the same entity is called an invention that's new and never existed in nature before. Citizens want to have it labeled. Citizens want to know the safety. It's, a, it's just like nature made it. This is how evolution has worked. This is how seeds have evolved. We've done it for thousands of years. And it's these inconsistencies that expose the narrative of GMOs. And at this point, frankly, the only thing that's working is the million of dollars being poured into advertising and bullying and character assassination of every kind. On scientific levels, on the democratic levels, on levels of performance, the technology is a failure. Only two applications, BT to control pests, HT to control weeds, both are failing. They're creating super pests and super weeds. And we can't base the future of humanity on a failed technology, the silencing of real research and real science, and taking away the democratic rights of citizens. So GMOs as an entity seem insignificant, but they actually hold the entire political economy, the entire planet's future, the future of our farmers, and the future of all human beings in terms of the food we eat, because all food begins with seed, and if the seed is genetically modified, then the food is genetically modified, and we know all the consequences, we hear more about them. There's so much myth out there, for example, that GE foods or GE crops offer all kinds of things from nutritionally enhanced foods, and we'll talk about the golden rice specifically as an example of that. But really, as Vandana said, it's really important, I think, for us all to realize that after hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars spent, and three decades of intense research, that really there are only two traits of GE crops out there. And the first one, overwhelmingly, is the herbicide-resistant crop, and that's at least 85% worldwide of GE crops are herbicide-resistant. And that 
that means that the crop can withstand repeated widespread dousing of the chemical or herbicide. And the predominant chemical mix is Roundup, and within Roundup Ready, glyphosate is the predominant herbicide that's being used. And then the second trait is Bt crops, which are known as Bt bacillus thuringiensis, and that means the plant essentially expresses a toxin that's intended to kill target pests. So those are really the only two traits after all of this research and money that happens. There's no nutritionally enhanced crop. There's no crop that's drought resistant or uses water more efficiently or any of those things out there. And also, I think it's important for us to note there's GE cotton, there's canola, there's alfalfa now in this country, some sugar beets, soybean, and maize. And those are the main crops that have been commercialized around the world. And there are many other crops being field tested, including trees, but so far nothing has been commercially approved here or abroad for consumption. So let's talk a bit about this myth of the nutritional enhancement. The golden rice would be probably a great example. This is being advertised by the biotech industry now. And basically the claim is that it enhances vitamin A. And in many developing countries, children are suffering from vitamin A deficiencies. This can cause blindness and some other problems. So golden rice is engineered supposedly to take care of this problem. First of all, it didn't happen for many years, at least a decade, because the companies were arguing about patent rights and who owns the rights to this. So that kind of says something in itself about technologies that require that kind of ownership and negotiation of who gets the profits. But secondly, I mean, it was widely reported in media. The New Yorker just did a story saying that golden rice was not on the market now and children were going blind because of activists who were denying the commercialization or the ability of this crop to get to people in need. And as Vandana said, with this crop in particular, it's not a Luddite kind of fear-mongering that's happening. It's that this technology of the golden rice has failed. And what the New Yorker didn't print in the story is that only a few months before the story was published, the International Rice Research Institute, which is growing and field testing the crop, totally in favor of GE crops, announced in a paper it is not working. It's not producing as much as we thought. It's even doubtful whether it has the sufficient vitamin A quantities that are needed to affect these children who are deficient in vitamin A. Yeah. The golden rice, as it's called, they've been trying to introduce it since the year 2000. 14 years. Mm -hmm. And even though they blame us for stopping it, we have had to do very little. And what we've had to do is show that it's a highly inefficient way to produce vitamin A. There are 80 patents, eight zero patents related to this. When they started, people would have had to eat three kilograms of rice every day to have their daily requirement met. And I wrote an essay at that time called The Blind Approach to Blindness Prevention. And it was because there's so much vitamin A we could have if we weren't killing the sources of vitamin A through monocultures on the one hand and the use of herbicides, which kill sources that are rich in vitamin A. The greens in the fields are where we get iron and vitamin A. 
and these have been defined as weeds in industrial agriculture, and herbicides kill them. Then you have deficiency. Then you want to do a genetically engineered rice. But you're not just losing vitamin A, you're losing everything else. You're losing many kinds of nutrients. I think the main issue about genetic engineering is it is an ingredient in the industrial agriculture system. It cannot exist outside the industrial agriculture system. And the industrial agriculture system has created the malnutrition crisis that we face today because it drove out the sources of biodiversity that would have brought us balanced nutrition. And our challenge is to bring that biodiversity back. And GMOs are unnecessary at every level, whether it's to control pests, to control weeds, or to provide nutrition. As we've written, we've, we have a report from Navdanya. It's called The GMO Emperor Has No Clothes. It's a global report from around the world. It's not working anywhere when measured in terms of the benefits to the earth or the benefits to people. It's only working as a source of super profits to Monsanto. Sam and Dave, can you share no, some of your experiences? I'll, I'll start and I'll just say that what Vandana is saying about the science and the reality of GMOs is completely accurate. And at the state level, we know in Maine that 92% of Mainers want to have their food labeled. So you have to ask the question, why are citizens being denied? And I think you have to go to the political realities of corporations and the power that they have. And we can't really talk about this unless we talk about what our government is doing and how it's been co-opted and is controlled by large corporate interests that don't want us to have the right to label food, then going beyond that to the discussions of all the issues and what we're doing to destroy our ecology and our planet. And Dave, maybe he can help there. Well, thanks, Sam. I come from Iowa, which is literally the land of GMOs. 97% of soybeans grown in Iowa are genetically engineered. 93% of our corn is genetically engineered. And one of the things is I moved back to Iowa a little over eight years ago to stop the factory farm half a mile from my sister's farm. I knew that industrial agriculture had created a lot of imbalances in rural America. They lost 86% of the family hog farmers in Iowa in a 15-year period because they changed the public policy that rigged the rules against them. One of the things is I got to know a lot of the people in GMO community in Iowa. One of the first things I noticed is farmers were having problems in their fields. So farmers were not only getting bullied by Monsanto, but they're also having crop failures and they're having infertility in livestock. They really couldn't explain where it was coming from. They're having a lot of massive diseases in these giant factory farms. The interesting thing as I started looking more into the genetic engineering question, to say that it's scientific fraud is a polite way to say it. It is a civilized way to say what is happening in our regulatory system in Washington, DC. Right now, President Obama is over in China trying to force China's doors open to biotech, to American biotech companies. And I find it outrageous. And I just say, we in this room, we collectively as a society and, and, and the citizens have to find a way to take back our democracy. In January 2011, a group of people started having a conversation. How can we stop the biotech juggernaut? What can we logistically and realistically do as a movement to try to put a dent in their inevitable wave of taking over our food supply? There are a couple mechanisms you have. You can either go to court and sue them. I think that court is a viable mechanism, but I think the courts are just, after 30 years of Reagan deregulation and, and corporate control of our government, the courts are just as rigged against us as a ballot box in the legislative sessions. That was our biggest concern. So we thought if we had a ballot initiative, you take a direct vote to the citizens. 
What we're up against in California, they spent $46 million to deceive California voters of what I call intentional voter confusion tactics. Polls initially showed 93 to 91% support. Once they start hearing the negative ads, it drops down to low 70s and 60s after $46 million. These are people in these states that want to have this conversation with their legislators. The numbers are starting to come on our side. But it's not enough. We really need some large players in America that care about the environment, that care about agriculture, that care about farming, and that care about the health and quality of our soil and our environment. This first wave of genetically engineered crops has failed and failed massively. There's 71 million acres of superweeds because of Roundup and Roundup-ready crops. And just a month ago, they approved 2,4-D. But that is what is in our food supply, this really toxic chemical. And for me, GMOs are really a toxic chemical delivery device. And that's what they're feeding us. Yeah. Well, yeah, the pressure is coming in many ways. You mentioned the China issue. In the last two years, China has been rolling back on GMOs, both in terms of first forbidding GMO feed to its army. They banned it last year. And this year, they sent back shipments to the U.S. The farmers are having to sue Syngenta. The trader, Cargill, is having to sue Syngenta. So they base, because Monsanto's really, its expertise is public relations and threatening with legal suits. You know, that's the real Monsanto. The rest is just a front. You've got Russia, by and large, saying no to GMOs. Most people don't know that the early part of the Ukraine crisis was that the European Commission was saying you can join the European Union if you accept GMOs. And the public said, we don't want GMOs because there's a ban. Mm -hmm. And then the protests were really sort of Monsanto versus the people of Ukraine. And before you know it, they became the West versus Russia. (laughs) There are new free trade agreements being pushed to undo the bans in Europe and the bans in the East. They are attempts to undo all the protections we've built in. You know, I've worked so hard for 30 years to make sure that biological processes and life forms do not get recognized as inventions. So they're excluded from patentability in our law. And I was appointed on the drafting committee for our Plant Variety Act, and I put in a farmer's rights clause that the farmer's rights to save, exchange, improve, sell seed can never be alienated. So when our prime minister visited recently, Obama and the prime minister signed thing, and I don't think our prime minister realized what he was signing on to, which basically is an attempt to undo all the gains we have made. And that's why it becomes so important to have movements for what I call seed freedom and food freedom worldwide, connected and knowing. The way they're trying to get to Africa as a whole continent, sadly, is through a Gates initiative called the Alliance for the Green Revolution in Africa. And across Africa, across the continent, they're trying to introduce one set of seed laws that would establish seed monopoly and make Africa one single market. But you know, the other side of the story is Peru last year went GMO-free. And it was a chef who joined the farmers for the demand. Costa Rica could be going GMO-free. So both trends are strong. 
both trends, the GMO-free trend is strong. And just this morning, we got a message that last year there was an attempt to dismantle. Most countries of Europe had voted for maintaining the European level bans and moratoria. And England, which is being used a lot to sort of subvert the European system, said we want national lawmaking. And they had put into that decision clauses that if countries decided to not have GMOs, they could be sued. But right now, the European Parliament just voted that countries have absolute rights to declare themselves GMO-free and they can't be sued. I want to just mention quickly about India. So Monsanto came in illegally with BT cotton. They tried to bring in BT eggplant. We had seven public hearings across the country. The first time a vegetable was the subject of public hearings. And a moratorium was put. Over the last year, there have been three attempts to allow field trials, not commercialization, but open field testing. And each time, we work with our ministry. The minister doesn't give the approval. The minister is removed. And someone else is put up. We've lost two very, very important ministers, but so far they haven't managed to get approval for the commercial field trials for the next generation of crops. And the longer, the longer it grows, the more people will become aware of how it's totally failed, how high the costs are to democracy and the environment. And every passing year makes the GMO world less possible for its expansion. Every passing year with our efforts, not automatically, but with our efforts, with our awareness, with our education, with our political engagement, makes it more possible to have a world of ecological agriculture, local food systems, and democratic food systems. So last year we started a campaign to stop GMO banana. Bill Gates has paid 15 million to one scientist, one scientist in Australia. And then our government pitched in. And the story was that they would do genetically engineered banana for vitamin A for Africa and iron for India. We did the calculations, even if they increased the iron content five-folds, it would be about 8,000% less iron than available alternatives in our biodiversity. During a trip I made to Indonesia, they served me a yellow banana. (laughs) And so I told the team that was hosting me, I said, please do research and find out where Dr. Dale got his banana from. Turns out it's pirated. The vitamin A in the super banana has been stolen from Micronesia. And it's called a super banana. Super banana. Super banana. So now they brought this super banana for human trials to this country, in my view, violating every law that's possible. There have been no animal experiments, straight human experiments. 12 students are being paid $900 in Iowa State University to eat three bananas each in three periods of trial. This is not a scientific assessment. (laughs) It's really a marketing ploy to tell the Africans, well, we've eaten it, and now you'd better eat it. 
So the, the banana story will become a bigger story as we go, but you should organize well, we, in Iowa we're, State. We're and, yeah. <laughs> I think they're violating the Nuremberg rules for sure. ethical uh, trials. Well, the first thing I thought when I heard, it's totally a PR and marketing thing. No real scientist would do this, signing up students. They did it at Iowa State University. It's a, kind of the epicenter of industrial agriculture in Iowa in the Midwest. They're very pro-biotech. Now, the other thing, so the reasons why I distrust the science behind the biotech industry, we hear stories from scientists about how they're being suppressed. So the failure of BT crops in Iowa was known. They announced it like October, November of 2011, that the super insects were becoming resistant to the BT toxin in the corn. I had a scientist literally at Iowa State University two weeks before at Iowa State Fair, I ran into her, and she said her department head would not let them release a fully peer-reviewed study because it was gonna show damage to the microorganism in the soil from the BT corn. They could not release it because they said it'll cut our funding. But that's the kind of thing that's happening in the Midwest and these universities and you slowly hear about it. But I mean, what, how can you stop a human feeding trial from the most powerful companies on the planet? I just think that's one of the things we found in legislatively time and time again. They have so much power. In the last three years alone here in the US, they've spent $100 million California, Washington, now Colorado, and Oregon, to basically confuse voters and to deny us our basic right. The GMO banana, I brought that up in a debate in Denver with the NAACP. And the woman on the opposition, she didn't realize that it was a vitamin A, but I think they're trying to replace the golden rice. This is their new success story. But I love that it's pirated. That's pretty, yeah, that's yeah. good news. And you can go to the website of Navdanya, yeah. N-A-V-D-A-N-Y-A, to get more sure. details on this. And so she said it was a vaccine in that banana, but it's not. I mean, I think she just got her facts it's wrong. It's nutrition. But the, yeah. the audience and, there didn't like that news. And it's not an accident that the two countries picked are India and Uganda. Mm -hmm. We are the two countries that produce the highest amount of banana, highest diversity of banana, and eat the most banana. Yeah. But we don't trade in it. Uganda's food staple is banana. Not rice, not corn, not wheat. They eat banana morning till night. Yeah. And in India, we are the highest growers with the highest diversity, but not for export, and we are, we are not registering on that. So it's basically a way, and this Dr. Dale has eight patents already on the banana. Wow. Now, it's not that he will commercialize it. Basically, the Del Montes will join. And I think Monsanto already has an agreement with Del Monte on fruits. Sure. Mm -hmm. So we are seeing a bigger and bigger and bigger concentration with the GMO as the entry point. It is the Trojan horse for absolute control and totalitarian control over our food system. And the thing of it all is, as I say, they have this huge marketing campaign and they create this narrative of success. There are so many people, I think even among folks that we work with and even activist groups who think that, the, for example, the vitamin A that kind of causes them to say, well, maybe there are some good applications of GE or something. But the fact is, and I remember years ago, they said in Africa, the sweet potato, they were going to do this virus-resistant sweet potato. And they had a, a scientist come from Africa and go around the US and say, the sweet potato, we're creating the virus-resistant GE sweet potato. It's going to save African farmers and the hungry. And I'd be in debates, and I'm sure you would too, with the head of the Gates Foundation at the time or members and saying, how can you deny poor people this? 
this tool of GE crops that could feed the world tomorrow. And in fact, though, there were the banner headlines that said there's this crop as if it existed, but in fact, it hadn't even been field tested yet. And there was a great quote in Forbes magazine, I'll never forget this, and it says, as named the Monsanto scientist, Ms. Wambugu, talks about feeding the nation. As the West debates the ethics of GE food, Florence Wambugu is using it to feed her people, as if it was a fact. But again, it wasn't even in field tests. And then two years later, the field tests failed completely. And very quietly, there were maybe some headlines in the Kenyan Daily newspaper that reported the failure. But the myth had already been created, and all the policymakers and, and many of the opinion leaders believed that this cassava and the sweet potato, they did this to both crops, already existed when in fact they didn't. So I think that's all the more reason for us to be sure that we're exposing these myths, which are many and paid for quite well. <laughs> I would say I think the biggest myth to expose and for everybody in the audience to be really vigilant on is the cultural meme that how can we feed 9.5 billion people without technology because that's the big pool from which all of this comes and then and then there are derivatives of course of course of course but we're here at Slow Money. We're talking about revitalizing our local agricultural systems because we, at various levels, we understand that ecological systems are what provide health and the health of the soil. So I think everybody needs to find a way to reflect on do we need to use biotechnology? Is it absolutely a must? to feed 9.5 billion people, and to then cascade thought down from there and come to your own opinion. But that's, I think, what you, know, you really need to hold up there and think about, because the market, corporations, the government, everything in our culture is about technology is leading to an advancement. It's the better way. And everybody we put up on a pedestal is some young kid who's used technology to do something. So I just would be very vigilant about that meme and really keep that in mind. You know, way back when the commercialization started, I was in the U.S., and I asked some of the farmers, I said, why do you grow GMOs? And they said, the companies have a nose round our neck. They decide what will be the seeds we sow. It's the strangulation of the seed supply that has made so many farmers move to GMOs, which is why democratizing the seed supply is so important. There was an anonymous letter written by breeders in the New York Times about three years ago saying we are not allowed to breed because the companies have the patents and they're preventing us from breeding. Mm -hmm. So I think more and more farmers need to get into being seed producers, sure. more and more partnerships. I mean, this is what we've done with scientists and farmers. They've created participatory breeding processes. And I think the focus on seed freedom is vital to increase the options, particularly because the technology is not working, and there's the new burden of increased herbicide use, new superweeds, but also with climate change, unless we have what I would call evolutionary breeding, we're not going to be able to cope. For me, I mean, in Denver two weeks ago at the NAACP, I said I want everyone to eat organic food. I think everyone, no matter what their socioeconomic status, has a birthright to organic food. That's what we should be eating. And we as a society should make that available. But the fact is, they laugh at you. 
You know, the biotech industry not only tries to tamp down on the laws that we're trying to get basic transparency, they also make fun of organic. And I think one of the terrible things that happened this year is that smear article that was written against Vandana. It was a great tragedy. And I really don't think anyone in America has properly taken up the mantle to defend her. And I just say, like, you know, I think that was a real tragedy. But that's what we have in the press. We have a lot of misinformation. The other side owns the media. So they get to disseminate bad information about organics and about our heroes in this movement. Vandana talked earlier about the situation in the Ukraine and how, in her opinion, it began as a food issue and sort of a food sovereignty issue and some struggles with the European community. And it immediately came to my mind, maybe that will be the issue here in the U.S. that sparks a more fundamental revolt and revolution, which we clearly need. But I, then I also think, well, we should be very careful because look at what happened to the Ukraine. We need to get on top of the food issue and food sovereignty and technology and government and democracy before it gets to a, too serious of a situation. Yeah, I totally support that because right now there are some openings which will close very fast. And I think it would be very wrong to dissipate energies on this or that, organic or non-GMO, local or organic. I think this or, either or issue, is not relevant because we are all striving towards the same transition. We are beginning in different places. At the end of the day, we're trying to evolve a food system that doesn't destroy the planet doesn't destroy people's health and doesn't finish off small farms and family farmers. No matter where you begin, at the end of it, everyone will need to be in local food systems that are ecological and organic. And if we do our work right and we don't divide ourselves, then many of the issues of labels will drop by the wayside because labels are protections in a period of lack of democracy and lack of participation. So we have the challenge, we have the opportunity, the future is not closed, and we'd better open it in the direction that works for all. Where my heart goes I'm a rancher, so I think a lot about water. With water, what we do is we try to slow it down, spread it out, and soak it in. So I like to think of slow money as being like the way water should be managed, and fast money is more like a flood, a torrent, a deluge that washes away everything in its place and leaves not pretty stuff behind. It's Berkshires, which is the local currency in the Berkshire region of Massachusetts. You can spend them in 400 different locally owned businesses. This is slow money. This is a different form of It's a way to bring real food back to the people, slowing down the sort of fast corporate get-rich-quick schemes and bring money to allow for most of the people to be able to live a good life rather than some of the people to live a redonkulous life. I hope that in this coming together with all this, slow money can slow itself down just enough that before it stops, it ends up in these neighborhoods that it can be slow and slow for all. I used to farm 7,000 acres conventionally, and now I'm turning my farm into a holistic farm. I've done everything wrong, totally wrong. 
and now it's time to make a ride. Yesterday, my favorite part would be Vandana Shiva. Hearing her in person and feeling the energy from what she's saying is much more powerful than just watching it on YouTube or reading the words she writes. This is a grassroots rebellion. It's a declaration of uh, independence or is it interdependence? And of course, it, it's both. Woody is connected and all of you are connected now as part of this effort, farm and food and nourishment with finance. And if we don't get the financial connection, we're never gonna make it. But it's time for new stories and new story that you're all telling. We're rewriting history. It's happening here and it's just beginning. It's gonna explode. You've been listening to some material from our wrap-up video from the 2014 Slow Money National Gathering. This is episode number 85 of The Extra Environmentalist. Next up, we have Vandana Shiva's keynote on our mindset of war embedded in our philosophy of agriculture. I realize today is Remembrance Day. It's called Veterans Day here, and they, we saw the armored tanks go by. But Remembrance Day is about the end of the First World War. It's meant to be about peace. My heart is with the survivors of the Bhopal tragedy 30 years ago, who are fasting right now in Delhi because till today, 30 years later, they don't have justice. And they're fasting without water. It was 30 years ago with the tragedy of Bhopal, which took immediately about 3,000 lives because of the leak of a pesticide plant owned then by Union Carbide, now it's owned by Dow Chemicals. And what connects the fasting of the Bhopal survivors in Delhi to the fate of agriculture in this country is that Dow Chemicals now is trying to bring genetically engineered crops resistant to 2,4-D, which was an ingredient of Agent Orange. Now, I started to look at agriculture in 1984 because of the tragedy of Bhopal and the tragedy of Punjab. When you join the two tragedies, we are talking about 12 9-11s. That's the number of people who died. And I was forced to sit up and ask, why has agriculture become like war? Why is it so violent? And I did my research and wrote the book for the United Nations University called The Violence of the Green Revolution. Now the story of the Green Revolution was this, that chemicals and miracle seeds, that's what it was called, chemicals and miracle seeds would create so much prosperity that we'd never have a peasant rebellion again. And prosperity to peace Green Revolution got a Nobel Peace Prize. When I started to look at it in 84, Punjab was not a land of peace. It had become a land of war. And I realized as I went deeper into it, it was a land of war because the instruments of industrial agriculture come from the wars. 
I'm reading on my trip, this very heavy book, not good reading. It's called Hell's Cartel. You remember the Nuremberg trials? You remember IG Farben? That was the beginnings of the chemical companies that became the agri-chemical companies that now have become the seed corporations. And that's a continuity we forget. So on this Remembrance Day, not only do I want to remember the tragedies that we have faced, tragedies of war, but the continuing tragedy of war in our food system and the imperative to create a non-violent, compassionate system of farming. The word in Sanskrit for non-violence is ahimsa. Himsa is violence. The absence of himsa is non-violence. And what I have learned in these 30 years is that the militarized mind that gave us war chemicals continues to guide the shaping of our agriculture and food. It is war through another name. And because it's based on these external inputs, the agrichemicals, seeds that have to be purchased, the GMO seeds, the non-renewable seeds, it can only survive as a monoculture. And a little later, after 1984, at a meeting in 1987, I was woken up to the fact that the old chemical companies were now bringing us GMOs largely to own and patent life and own and patent seed to collect royalties from seed. That those monocultures are now becoming elements of monopoly control over life itself and therefore over the food system. Our challenge is to create systems that are at peace with the earth and at peace with our bodies because at the end of it, food is what nourishes us or should be nourishing us. Today, food has become the single biggest threat to both the planet as well as our health. We're repeatedly told we need those pesticides, we need those chemical fertilizers, we need the GMOs for feeding the world. Nine billion people can't feed them without these technologies. The reality is, in spite of a century in the West and half a century in my country, industrial chemical agriculture has actually increased hunger in the world. It has increased malnutrition in the world. It has not solved the problem. This is the year of family farming for the United Nations. And the figures that have come out this year are that 30% of the food is all we get from the industrial large-scale system. 70% comes from small farms. And the FAO was not counting gardens. If you add gardens to the small farms, we would reach an 80% figure. And as was the discussion earlier in the GMO session, from 80% we can reach 100% very, very easily. Only 30% of the food is coming from an agriculture system that is engaged in war against the earth. 75% of the biodiversity in agriculture has been driven out by monocultures. 
Look at what's happened to pollinators. The UNEP assessment on ecological services of pollinators shows $169 billion of contribution by pollinators, which are being killed. 75% of the water abuse is for industrial farming. When I did the study on Punjab, I realized 10 times more water was being used to produce the same amount of food. And it isn't just the water that's being exploited. Punjab will be out of water by 2020. The rivers are dying, and the groundwater is now at about 1,000 feet below. But this water loaded with chemicals is then running into waterways, into lakes, into oceans, creating dead zones. And the air that we breathe, 40% of all greenhouse gases are coming from an industrial globalized system of agriculture. And that's the reason I wrote my book, Soil Not Oil, that in the soil is not just the solution to absorb carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, but in the soil is the alternative to grow food in ways that we don't have to harm the earth, we don't have to kill the microorganisms, we don't have to kill the pollinators, we don't have to kill ourselves. The violence against our bodies, the first violence is that we are not producing food. What's being produced is commodities. Commodities don't feed people. Most of the corn and soya of this country is going for animal feed and biofuel. Now, if we listened to the cows and the bovine, they would be telling us, I want grass, I'm a herbivore. Herbivore means grass, herbs. They didn't vote for intensive feed from GMO soya bean or GMO corn. The combination of diverting so much land to commodity production and so much commodity to non-food use is one part of the problem. 10% is all of the corn and soya that goes directly for human eating. And I would imagine if you manage to get your labeling laws in place, even that 10% will disappear. Today, a billion people are hungry permanently. Hunger was always localized in space and time. You had a bad drought, you might have hunger that year. Next year the rain came, you had food. And even with a drought, in India we've had traditional systems that ensured that in bad years you'd still have food. The most intensively inhabited desert of the world is the region of Rajasthan, the desert state of India in the Northwest, beautiful state. In Rajasthan, because they're a desert, because they know there'll be rainfall failure, there are villages that stock food grain as a commons for five years so that you won't have hunger. People will be fed. Today we have a billion people hungry because it is not linked to one year's drought or a localized war, it is linked to the structural design of an industrial food system. My book, Making Peace with the Earth, has a very long section of hunger by design. And I have watched how in regions where tribals are growing rice, they can't eat the rice because they've borrowed for the chemicals that go into the rice and they've got to sell the 
rights they grow to pay for the debt. This is why globally, of the one billion people who are hungry, half of them are farmers and producers of food who are not able to eat what they grow because of the chemical treadmill and with it the debt treadmill. In India, 250 million hungry, half of them are farmers. A system of capital-intensive, chemical-intensive, fossil-fuel-intensive agriculture must create a debt trap. And a debt trap leads to hunger at individual level, household level, as well as national levels. There was a lot of discussion this morning about cheap food. In the third world, there's nothing like cheap food. Because the global market has been taken over by the agribusiness, the cargills of the world, who introduced into the World Trade Organization the agricultural agreement. I call it the Cargill Agreement. And the Cargill Agreement, in effect, has led to huge dumping with subsidies in the third world. The rich country subsidy is $400 billion per year. That's more than a billion dollars a day. And with this dumping, hunger grows because people can't grow food. The market's taken over with this artificially cheap entry, which is then speculated on, and that is the key. I don't know how many of you followed that the, what was called the Arab Spring actually began as food riots in Egypt. The first marches of the people were holding bread because of the speculation. After the 2000 collapse of Wall Street, investors moved into food. And there were advertisements saying, don't you like rising prices? It's good for investors to have rising prices. But for the poor who are eating one meal a day, rising prices means they eat a half meal a day. And Syria, which is at the heart of the media obsession of this country, as recently as 2009, the issue in Syria was a severe drought. And because the seed supply system has changed over time, farmers are not allowed to use drought-tolerant seeds that they have evolved and bred. They get seeds which require chemicals. That's what the Green Revolution was about. So the drought meant very, very severe failure of crops. 75% crop failure, 85% livestock death. 800,000 people moved from villages into the city of Dara and started to protest. But Assad had commitments to the globalized trade system, not to looking after his farmers. And he started to throw the peasants into jail, just as much as the farmers of Punjab were thrown into jail in those days, which then led to the eruption of violence. We've seen after that what happened. The rebels organized against Assad. Sadly, the US, which thinks it knows what it's doing, financed the rebels. Out of it, you got an ISIS. And now there's no idea about what to do. When I watch what's going on in Syria, I think of the same logic of militarized violence that is taking place in the fields. Without diversity of insects, 
many of which are pollinators, many of which are friendly insects, like spiders and ladybird beetles, which control pests. Industrial agriculture sees every insect as an enemy to be exterminated. Bring the spray guns. Every plant that grows, and I've done studies, 250 species of volunteer crops that grow on their own in ecological fields in India and bring us the nutrition we need. But everything that grows on its own, enemy to be exterminated with herbicide. You know, so much of what has spread worldwide as organic farming started with Sir Albert Howard being sent to India in 1905 to improve Indian agriculture. And as he says in his book, The Agricultural Testament, I arrived, I saw no pests in the field, the fields were fertile, I threw away my spray gun and decided to turn the pest and the peasant into my teachers. That's the humility of a real scientist. As a result of his studies, he then wrote the Agricultural Testament. He also started detailed studies on soils, wrote the book Soil and Health, which is also published by the Kentucky University Press, and told us that health is one grand continuum from the soil to the plant to the humans. Next year is going to be the year of soil, and I'm committed to doing a pilgrimage to Indore, where Howard went to develop the composting system, which he called the indoor process. And I hope some of you will join us on this pilgrimage. It'll be in the first week of October. On the 1st of October, we celebrate a festival for the earth. And next year, of course, we'll celebrate the living soil. In industrial agriculture, by the way, the soil is defined as an empty container, which has only two functions, to hold the plant and to hold the nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium because industrial agriculture had no idea about the richness of the soil organisms. Now, not only is the soil living, seeds are living. I mean, I've been reading that all morning. A tomato seeds makes even the highest flyers seem poultry. There's a family of crops which I absolutely love, and we've promoted them as forgotten foods, the family of millets, which you think is bird food, but it is the most nutritious human food. <laughs> Now, the reason the seven species of millets are called millets is because each seed gives a million seeds. It's from the million that you get the word millet. For the same amount of water, you can grow 400 times more nutrition. I weaned my son on finger millet, which has so much calcium, so much iron, that you can never have deficiency. And that's the issue, that biodiversity and seeds of biodiversity are the source of food and nutrition. They are the source of doing pest control without us having to spray poisons. A good field with good cover crops, a mixture will never have weeds. And the few weeds that come will usually be useful for animals or humans. You know, my favorite are amaranth and chenopodium, We've grown up on this. And on our farm, I'm so happy to see the Navdania farm in Dune Valley. Now they have plants that I haven't seen since childhood. 
There's a PhD student doing studies on pollinators and she counted six times more pollinators on the farm than in the forest next door. Which also tells us that when we do compassionate farming for love for the earth and all her species, we actually create sanctuaries for all life. One sanctuary is under the soil, which we don't see, but it's the basis of our survival. You know, the last book that Darwin wrote was on what he called the earthworm. He called it the mold. And he wrote this book and said, when human history will be written, it will be recognized that the earthworm plays the biggest role in human survival. And soils rich in earthworms have much higher nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium than any amount you can put from outside. And they're aerating the soil. They are the soil builders. They are creating a water reservoir. They are the alternative to the fertilizer factory. And yet, what we are doing is throwing chemicals and toxics and killing the soil. The chemical industry that came out of the war, starting from 1980s onwards, realized that they could appropriate the tools of recombinant DNA and apply them to farming. And I was at this meeting in 87 and they were very honest. They said, the reason we have to do genetic engineering of seeds and crops is it's the only way we can take a patent. A patent is an exclusive right for an invention that prevents making, using, selling, distributing, whatever is patented. When it comes to machines like this mic, yes, whoever made it would either have had a license from the original patent holder or have a patent themselves. But life and seeds are not inventions. Seeds evolve, they're a continuity of evolution. I'm so grateful to Pope Francis who said, evolution is real. And in every little seed is millions of years of evolution of the earth. In the tiniest of seeds is thousands of years of cultural evolution and human intelligence that's gone into breeding. 99.9% .9 breeding has been done by farmers. Now the varieties farmers have bred and they've been bred further by public scientists, public breeders, they're being appropriated. And it's a very clever way of appropriation. Basically, you shoot a toxic gene through recombinant DNA with a gene gun, and now you claim the evolutionary potential of that plant as your manufacturer. There's a very tragic decision of the Supreme Court of this country last year, Bauman versus Monsanto, where a farmer buys soya bean in an elevator and the Supreme Court rules that no matter how far down the line the grain is, it's the manufacture and property of Monsanto. Now Monsanto wrote the intellectual property rights laws of WTO. Their representative James Enyart admitted in a 1995 meeting in Washington DC, we were the patient, physician, and diagnostician all in one. We wrote a treaty, gave it to our government, which then took it to the world. 99, this treaty, which is on patenting of life, was to be reviewed. 
statutory mandatory review in the WTO. My government and many governments said patenting of life has too many implications, should not be allowed. And biopiracy, the stealing of biodiversity as well as traditional knowledge, should be treated as an international crime. Not only has that review not been done, there is now an attempt, you know, our Prime Minister came recently and uh, President Obama, they signed an agreement, basically driven by corporations, to prevent any farmer's rights in, in India or to prevent us from making generic medicine which costs about 100 times less. I have an idea about this and I'll come back to it towards the end. So we've got, since the patenting started and GMOs were introduced to do patenting, what do we have? We've got four crops, corn, canola, soya, cotton. That accounts for most planting. In my country, only cotton, BT cotton exists. Monsanto came in illegally, I had to sue them. Eventually, they got their approvals. Today, Monsanto controls 95% of the cotton seed supply in India. The seed cost jumped 17,000%. It used to be five rupees before globalization. And Monsanto sold seeds at 3,700 rupees a kilo. And because it doesn't really work, neither is the herbicide tolerance working to control weeds, nor is the Bt toxin working to control pests. Farmers are having to use more pesticides in India, more herbicides, and more Roundup here. So what does Monsanto do? Add a second gene for the toxic. Most evolution requires multi-genetic concerts. That's what breeding is about. For whole systems to evolve together. Rice with rice, wheat with wheat. The single gene transfer that has been achieved through genetic engineering can only express single traits, and these are toxic traits. Yield doesn't come from single gene transfer, it comes from the whole plant. Drought tolerance doesn't come from single gene transfer, it's in the evolution of the plant. So basically, now they're adding two genes. I think in the US you have eight stacks, eight genes added. They are still single gene expressions of Bt and Ht. And it reminds me of Einstein saying, a clear sign of insanity is doing the same thing again and again and again, expecting a different outcome. If one gene evolved resistance in the past, two genes will evolve faster resistance. If one gene evolved resistance in the weed, then five genes is going to create weeds that are absolutely uncontrollable. Of course, they're now coming out with stories about golden rice and GMO banana. The golden rice is hundreds of percent inferior to the biodiversity we can be growing if we weren't spraying that biodiversity with herbicides to kill it. If we want enough vitamin A, and enough iron, we need biodiversity to flourish. We need every small farmer to be able to grow diversity and through it grow nutrition. We need gardens in every school and in every community. Because growing of commodities is not what's going to solve the food crisis we face, we decided to start assessing the nutrition per acre on our farms. Because after all, food is for nutrition. And the report we produce called Health Per Acre, 
I'll just run through the summaries because if I go through every farm, we'll be way past the time. In terms of protein, organic mixed farming, 250 compared to chemical monocultures, 116. Carotene, for which, you know, the beta carotene for the vitamin A that they are doing, the golden rice or the super banana, 2,919 in an ecological system compared to 745. All you have to do is bring the biodiversity and ecology back into farming. Folic acid, 878 compared to 328. Vitamin C, 24,000 versus 3,000. Calcium, 2,166 compared to 731. Iron, 82 versus 43. Phosphorus, 5,000 versus 300. Magnesium, 1,800 versus 1,400. The nutrition we need will come from ecological farming and it'll come from biodiversity. We have to intensify the diversity and ecological processes, not toxic chemicals and capital-intensive inputs. So not only do we produce more food and nutrition, the GMO issue, there's comparisons done of corn and non-GM corn. Things we don't need in our food are increasing. Glyphosate residues, glyphosate is not breaking down which is the story that's told. Glyphosate survives. 13 parts per million, the zero in non-GMO, and the mysterious part to which a lot of scientists are turning, formaldehyde is in nature, but it keeps breaking down, so it never accumulates. But in GMO corn, it's accumulating, and they're 200 parts per million compared to zero. Everything that's beneficial has dropped. Calcium is only 14 in GMO corn, 6,000 unit parts per million in non-GM corn. Magnesium, two versus 113. Manganese, which is so vital to brain function, two versus 14. So not only are we robbing the soil of nutrients, we are robbing our food system of nutrients. And instead of nutrition, we are putting toxics. And that's a double danger. That's why it's no accident that the health disaster has exploded, whether you look at it in terms of obesity, diabetes, autism, cancers. We haven't even begun to really look. And because in addition to the harm to our bodies, there is a violence against knowledge. There's a violence against society's ability to know. On the one hand, this is the labeling battle, where you, the right to know is treated as an interference in the freedom of speech of the corporate person. On the other hand, you have the silencing of scientists. The reason the propagandists are so unhappy with me is because we work with the farmers, we provide alternatives, and we actually have studies that have made a difference to our national policies. Five states are going organic. We've done a new report which is called Wealth Per Acre where we actually take into account all the externalities and it's 1.26 trillions for Indian farming. And we then do a comparison of chemical farming with farming based on biodiversity, seed sovereignty, food sovereignty. Farmers earn 10 times more when they are free when they have their own seeds, when they can practice ecological agriculture. And our agriculture minister released it. Five states are making a transition to organic farming, and 
the northeast of India has a priority. The biotech industry also has a priority for that region. The chemical industry has a priority of that region. So a lot will be decided with what happens there. And finally, there is the violence against freedom and democracy, which in my view is the most serious part of what's going on with the food system. On the one hand, farmers' freedom to save seed is taken away, not just with intellectual property rights laws, but new seed laws that are trying to prevent the alternative that we are sowing from growing. You can't have organic food without organic seed. You can't have non-GMO food without non-GMO seed. And having seen that the alternatives are flourishing everywhere, seed saving is flourishing everywhere, in 2004, an attempt was made to introduce a law that would require all seed to be registered. It's called compulsory registration, which in effect means you prevent farmers from having open source seed. This year in this country, the laws that were framed at the same time, 2004 must have been a very active year, but those 2004 laws are now being implemented. Two seed libraries have been sent notices, one in Pennsylvania and one in Maryland. In LA, where two years ago I asked people, start saving seeds, make LA GMO free, they did. Just a few weeks ago, LA became GMO-free through a council decision. They're now getting notices that GMOs are seed, and therefore local councils can't make these decisions. That's why the challenge of food is a challenge of food democracy. Even more importantly, it's a challenge of earth democracy because how we grow our food decides whether we will wipe out species, destroy small farmers, destroy the land, and destroy our health, or through the seeds of freedom and freedom in our food systems, we will protect the earth, we will re-inhabit the countryside, we will have new livelihood and creative opportunities for people and nourish our health. Local food systems need local seed supply. Local seed supply needs local democracy and sovereignty over the seed. It needs the reclaiming of seed as a commons. This is what I've been doing in India over the last three decades. We've created 110 community seed banks which make seeds available after cyclones, during droughts, the nutritious crops that are now producing far more food than industrial agriculture ever can. And I want to close with just three short points. The first is, I've already made a request to dear Wendell. We need Wendell to write a poetic piece on seed and life on earth. That these are not human inventions. These are not the properties of Monsanto. And farmers can't be criminalized for performing their duty to the earth to protect the seed and protect the future. And I hope Wendell will do this because with these new threats coming from the US-India joining, we need a US-India citizen's response, but a citizen's response as earth citizens who live on one common earth and share one common future through a compassionate agriculture, an agriculture based on love and celebration. The second 
I think we need to join our campaigns on GMOs, poisons, and pesticides and make them one to get all poisons out of our food system. They didn't belong there, and they should now be removed. That would be the real peacemaking with the planet and our bodies. So I've been having this idea that Earth Day is now called Mother Earth Day, 22nd of April, and 10th of May is Mother's Day. And we need to really intensify our celebrations of poison-free food, doing everything we can, whether we are council members, whether we are researchers and scientists, whether we are farmers, whether we are eaters, all of us can join. And finally, what the crisis of agriculture and food is reflecting is a crisis in the human condition. A crisis which has made us believe that we can go in ignorance and without power to supermarket shelves as consumers. And that act is eating. That act is not eating. It's not about nourishment. We need to reclaim our Earth's citizenship with deep consciousness, with deep compassion, so that every time we eat, or every time we sow a seed, we are taking into account the full complex of the web of life that is contained in that seed or contained in that bite of food. And through everyday actions, everyday actions, not wait for four years for that vote. We don't have the luxury of waiting four years for the next vote. Every meal, every planting, every season, every harvest has to become the sowing of earth democracy and through it, the sowing of food democracy. Thank you. out our edited recording of Vandana Shiva's keynote to the 2014 Slow Money Gathering. And you can find the full keynote along with Seth's beautiful production skills and the amazing work of our camera operators in pulling the zoom and the focus and all these beautiful creative shots on our YouTube channel and also on the Slow Money YouTube channel. We'll link to that in our show notes. But Seth, Vandana Shiva was talking there right at the end about how we can't wait four years for the next election cycle. We have to look at every single meal that we are planning, that we're putting together and looking at that as the elements of a broader food democracy that are creating this new vision of our food systems that's not based on war, on the agency of war and on the chemicals of warfare. That was really one of the key takeaways from Vandana Shiva's talk for me is that not only is it based on the concept of war against conquering nature. It's based on the actual chemical inputs that are used in weaponry. And that was a key 
part of starting all of the processes that make our modern food system. Yeah, isn't that wild that during World War II, the companies that made the gases that killed people actually converted their systems into making food and, and seed companies? And they're actually, they're still around today. Like the companies that we work with now that do most of the modern farming come from those same companies. And that's, that's just wild to yeah, me. Yeah, that blew me away. It puts in perspective the fact that these were military companies and now they're growing food, which is very much a non-military thing, but they have that same kind of military mindset. And they take that military mindset and they, they own patents for seeds and they own patents for life, basically. And these monocultures are, are patents on life and they're genetically changing them so that they can work more efficiently, which works very well when you're developing wartime chemicals. But does it really work very well when you're trying to feed a planet? So yeah, it's a very interesting concept that the same companies that we rely on to kill people, we're now relying on them to feed people. And they're not even really doing a very good job of it. There's increased hunger all across the world, malnutrition all across the world. And actually only 30% of the food from the industrial system actually goes to feed humans. Majority of the food around the world comes from single family farms. And, and small farms as well. We're not even using that food productively. Most of that food goes to feeding animals, animal feed and biofuels. And this is really a not very efficient process at all. The first part of the show, we were hearing that town hall on food and it started off in discussing the externalities of farming and food systems. And they were talking about the study on quantum the externalities of nitrogen fertilizer, one of the key things that allows this massive productivity in our food system. And so one kilo of nitrogen fertilizer costs about a dollar and you get $3 of return in terms of agricultural output. But when you take all the true costs through the whole system of the environmental costs and the health costs, just the environmental costs alone are about $3. So you're basically breaking even by using nitrogen fertilizer. But then when you consider all the health externalities, so, you know, the cost on the healthcare system of the nitrogen runoff and the harm that it causes to humans, it's about $10 for every dollar you spend on nitrogen fertilizer for agriculture. So you're gaining $3 in return and losing $10. So you're in the whole $7 for every dollar you spend on nitrogen fertilizer from a broader systemic perspective. Even if you don't think about the actual numbers of this whole equation, what we're basically doing is taking oil out of the ground, turning it into fertilizer, putting it on our crops and eating it. We figured out a way to make oil into food. That, that is the craziest thing ever. And it's been able to support an incredible amount of people on our planet just through this process of oil into food, cheap subsidized oil into cheap subsidized food. The idea of genetically modified organisms is definitely a contentious debate. And, you know, I do see both sides. I do see the, the argument that people make on how if we are going to feed, you know, 9 billion people, probably some form of genetic engineering may be necessary. I understand where people are coming from when they make that argument. I was not familiar with a lot of the research that was brought up in that panel on GMOs of the false claims made by the industry. And it really stands the idea of GMOs to feed 9 billion people on its head of providing, you know, enough vitamin A and the whole story about, you know, how the banana research was going on, the, the golden bananas and, and things like that. The golden rice. Yeah. And the golden rice. That was really eye opening to me about how poorly 
all of those genetically modified crops are performing. And to me, it's about the broader story that we're trying to tell through our civilization. And though I'm not automatically opposed to GMOs, it definitely opens a pathway to allow private patents of life, of seeds, of human life. And, you know, maybe if it was done entirely in the public domain, then maybe I could be more in favor of it. But because these are private companies that are doing it and private companies that would be profiting from it and they're doing it in a for-profit model, I just don't see how the more dire potential consequences wouldn't play out over the long run. And so if we have this viewpoint where the only way we're going to survive as a species is just a no-holds-barred technological progress, then we're going to create so many unintended consequences as we've discussed on so many of the episodes of our show. If you go all the way back to episode number 37 on Technofix and the problem of viewing technological progress as the way to solve climate change or food or challenges of modern humanity, then we're going to end up on this treadmill where the unintended consequences continue mounting. And so we have to innovate faster and faster. And that's why Sandra Von Lue caused the innovation Ponzi scheme and what Ronald Wright caused the innovation trap. We've talked about this a lot on the show about how the low-hanging fruit as far as technological innovation has in many ways been picked. And now it takes teams and teams of people doing research for dozens of years to come up with just one new innovation. You know, you brought up golden rice for a second there, Justin. And speaking on innovation, this one golden rice species has had 80 patents related to it, 80 different innovations on one single grain. It's pretty incredible that the amount of work and innovation into a product that doesn't even work very well that was supposed to help fight blindness on children just didn't work. It flopped. I'm sure hundreds of millions of dollars were were put into this product. Innovation on a product that doesn't even work. I think there's absolutely tons of potential innovations that can happen in the realm of communications technology and computer technology, but that's not going to solve all of our problems of food and climate change. And I think the future is very bright for continued, you know, rapid progress in computer technology. We're just on a trend and we edit the show on one of the newer Mac Pros and it's unbelievably small and compact and now I can fit it in a bag and carry it anywhere. And that same computer four or five years ago would have been three times the size, a quarter as much power. There are lots of places where technology is really effective. And like you mentioned, telecommunications and computers are one. But in the area of agriculture and food production, these are things that have been with humans since the beginning. Innovating on a system that works so well already is silly sometimes. You know, why why do it? What, what's the point? Well, I would say there's a lot of alternative forms of innovation that we can do for our food systems that are using ideas of permaculture and food forests and feedback loops of the systems of nature that aid each other rather than disrupting them. And that's the kind of innovation I wish we could get the kinds of financial resources that go into a Monsanto that a government funds research into at big agricultural universities. If we had anywhere close to you know 2% of all that money money going into finding ways to have sustainable food systems from a concept of permaculture, then that is an innovation on agriculture that would aid the planet, that would be additive rather than subtractive, as we heard in our last episode with Joel Salatin. And it gets back to this concept of the debt trap of agriculture. 
you know, maybe there are some real benefits for genetically modified foods in the future, but if it's bankrupting farmers across the world where they can't afford it, where they have to buy expensive fertilizers and they're saddled with generations of debt, even if the productivity benefits or nutrient benefits end up working out and get innovated around and are there, are we really going to be able to afford it? That's another broader question that Vandana Shiva raised in her talk. Also, the idea that I thought was kind of interesting is how we've given away much of the food production that used to be taken on by ourselves, by people in our community, by local farmers. And we've given it to big business and big agribusiness who've in turn done what businesses do best, which is make the most efficient process out of food. And this has been really detrimental to so many processes in our society, not to mention, you know, the fact that we don't know where most of our food comes from. We don't know how it gets there. And with the toxic materials it goes into it, it's basically one of the guys was saying how GMOs are toxic chemical delivery systems. You go to a pig farm and it's toxic. You fall into one of those cesspools and you're dead. It's a pretty disgusting place to live on a pig farm. But this is the way business works. It is able to make the most efficient process out of pretty much anything. Efficient from a perspective of price. And what that does is it takes the costs borne by the rest of society and puts higher costs there in many cases for the sake of getting a low cost efficiency. And so moving into a few news items, one I wanted to jump on was just an article on the true cost of gasoline. And this is on a recent study published actually from Duke University where you work, Seth. This was a study published in the journal Climactic Change on the social cost of atmospheric release that was doing the same thing that we were talking about earlier in this episode that the panelists were talking about earlier in this episode regarding the externality costs of nitrogen fertilizer. And so they were looking at all the greenhouse gases like carbon dioxide and aerosol releases and methane and all the different pollutants from burning gasoline. This professor, Drew Schindel, is calculating it at Duke University, said we're paying basically like $6.25 for a gallon of gasoline in U.S. dollars. Currently, the national average price of gasoline in the United States is $2.50. So it's basically almost $4 more that we're paying throughout the rest of society by looking at all the you know emissions and the social and environmental costs of burning gasoline. Does it end up in our, in our atmosphere? Does it end up in its carbon emissions? Where does that money end up? Yeah, it, it's a tax on the environment, basically. So because we have cheap gasoline, the environment and future generations are paying that cost of, you know, the extra $4 or so for every gallon that we burn. We get the cheap gasoline now, but then those costs keep mounting on those people. And we're already seeing those challenges from things like extreme droughts in places like California and Sao Paulo. By having this massively overscaled civilization, we're bigger than our water tables can handle. We're bigger than our atmosphere can handle now as a human civilization. And we've got to find ways to be intelligent in capturing at least some of that cost we're inflicting on all of our Earth systems. 
systems. So, you know, when you see gas prices low like they are right now because of the glut of oil, one of the things we can think about there is using that opportunity to institute price supports for gasoline. So that way you don't get the rush of people who say, hey, gasoline's cheap. I'm going to go out and buy an SUV again. And that just puts another, you know, 10 or 20 years of gasoline usage back into the fixed infrastructure of the economy because someone bought a 12 mile per gallon vehicle rather than a 35 mile per gallon vehicle or a hybrid that's getting even better. Well, I have to return my Hummer now, Justin. Is that what you're telling <laughs> yeah, me? Yeah, exactly. I just went out and bought one because I thought the oil prices were low. <laughs> Definitely. <sighs> Damn. I, I bought this diesel powered mixer here to record our episode. So let me crank up. Oh, that yeah. <laughs> <laughs> gas is so cheap. It's like, why use electricity? So, you know, in talking about really cheap gasoline, I just want to touch on one other article. And this is from the Wolf Street blog, which has been doing a fantastic job of covering the ongoing fracking bust and all the financial pain that's being caused in the oil sector from low oil prices. Right now, we're at a point where this one article that we'll link to our show notes on the U.S. oil bust just getting worse. Every week we get reports of rig counts to see, you know, is supply going offline? Are the fracking plays that all of these fracking wells are based in, are they, are the companies taking the rigs offline? Well, in a lot of cases, they have to keep pumping oil. They have to keep the rigs online in order to pay their debtors, even if they're making less money than they thought they could originally when they put them up. But right now at mid-March of 2015, we're down about 46% from the peak on the number of rigs drilling from for oil in the United States. And during the financial crisis in 2008, the number of rigs drilling for oil in the United States dropped by about 60%. So it's very likely that we're going to see a continued drop off in rigs that are producing oil. You said 60%, Justin? Yeah, 60% drop versus about wow. 46% right now. What's really interesting is you can see on, on this link in the show notes, a little graph that shows the US fracking boom and bust from multiple decades. And it looks exactly like all the plots you see of any financial bubble where there's this early ramp up and then a massive boom and then it hits a peak that kind of undulates as a plateau. And then there's this last burst of optimism right before it goes under because everyone who's been waiting to get in is like, now is really the time. It's a permanent change in the paradigm. The U.S. is going to be energy independent and tons of people invest in fracking. And then suddenly it all goes bust. And so what I would expect is that there might be a little bit of a level off and maybe even an uptick one more time before the final downturn begins and everyone realizes probably later this year or early or mid next year just how big the financial catastrophe will be as all of these shale drillers start going bust but you never know how it'll play out our financial systems are complex and they are dealing with complex global energy systems so it's going to be an interesting story to follow regardless yeah, speaking of roller coasters, I just got back from Southern California where there is a big statewide drought, which has been going on for what, like a hundred years? It's been going on for a long time. And we've talked a lot about resource management and how resources right now, where we think a lot about oil, and we just did a whole show about food. Water is another huge one. We've not really talked about that much on our show before, but water is a huge upcoming issue. Thinking forward into the future, water is going to be a big issue. And, you know, a little bit of light, a lighter touch here. We don't usually talk about light things, but 
There's a new roller coaster in a water park and it uses magnets instead of water. And I thought that was a really nice little innovation. It uses electromagnets to move it around. Linear induction currents and motors to generate lots of magnetic fields that can move people through a not so water rich water ride. Human innovation right here is showing forth and it's a wonderful thing when people can ride water rides without using too much water. And I wanted to thank all of our listeners to the show who have been donating in helping us upgrade our equipment and upgrade our quality so we can continue improving the professional sound of our show so that it sounds like something that you would hear if we could get on NPR. Of course, you know, that's not going to happen with our radical skits and ideas, but, you know, at least we can sound like we belong there. So thank you to everyone who's been donating recently, even though we've had, you know, a bit of our own drought in putting episodes out, but we're getting our production schedule worked out for the new year and templating a lot of things we're doing in terms of videos. So we're going to have episodes out at least once a month in the near future. So some of the recent people who have been donating are uh, Richard in Spain, who said that he really enjoyed all of our work on the degrowth conference and really enjoyed Naomi Klein's talk. And he says it's unfortunate that only in a post-capitalist period can degrowth be implemented. But, you know, we've got to get this information out there so it will be absorbed. So many thanks and many thanks to you, Richard. Thanks, Richard. We also heard from Paul from the Newosphere. Thanks so much for sending in a generous donation. Yeah, Paul keeps donating to the show. He's been donating for many years now. And so we're really appreciative of that, Paul. Thanks to Benny in Australia. We've got some t-shirts headed over to Australia. We actually just got our new shipment of all the shirts to restock our inventory after so many people were donating and getting t-shirts. So all the people who've been waiting, like our next person we wanted to thank, Jim in Seattle. Jim sent you a, a note and was like, where's my t-shirt, right? <laughs> he did. <laughs> yeah, Jim, Jim was like, where, where the heck's my t-shirt, guys? I've been waiting for it forever. And we're like, don't worry, Jim, it's coming. We're, we're going to get it to you super soon. And Jim's like, yeah, well, we better hurry it up. <laughs> and we're like, okay, don't worry, Jim. We'll get it to you. <laughs> no, Jim's been super patient. I mean, it's been a very, he's been on the waiting list for a long time. So, you know, we're finally caught up. So at least this lag is not going to be there anymore. We also heard from Zach from New Jersey, who said that we've really left him no alternative but to make a contribution. Zach, you're too kind. We we just do this at the generosity of our hearts and when people tell us that we're doing a good job we just have we have no words but to say thank you so very much for your kind donations and compliments zach's living in one of the strongholds of the existing economic paradigm in new york new york and he finds hope in the words of our podcast and finds community with hearing about people that we talk about on the show. It's really cool that you're trying to organize a transition town, Zach, in in New Jersey. And, you know, we'd love to get Rob Hopkins on the program as well in the future. Yeah, so thanks so much for your donation. And we're going to have more shows heading out there to hopefully inspire you and the people who are going to be working with you in Newark on the transition town ideas. Thank you so much for your kind donations, all of you that have sent in donations. And thanks especially to our repeat donators, those folks who find so much extra money in their bank accounts and so much value in our show. They send in donations month after month. We really appreciate those folks so very much. If you too would like to make a donation to the Extra Environmentalist, head over to our website where you can find a link on the right side of the the page and just click it and send in some money. We have all sorts of ranks for different kinds of donators. $30 will get you an Extra Environmentalist 
environmentalist t-shirt and you too could wear the brands of your favorite podcast all over everywhere you go you know you can even wear it to work and your boss will be like, who's the extra environmentalist? And you're like, well, is this podcast? And then you just go off on a long tirade. <laughs> yeah, talking about the true cost of gasoline. Did you know that your gasoline really should cost $6 and then everyone will hate you? Yes, and then you can talk <laughs> about how everyone's eating GMO food. And if you shop at Walmart, you're pretty much going to hell. If you want to join the conversation online, head over to our Facebook page where we post lots of interesting links. And you can talk to other like-minded folks who who like our page and you can join the conversation there. Twitter is a great place to follow us as well. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm more active on the extra environmentalist Twitter these days. I just, after the degrowth conference in Germany, I just lost all interest in Facebook. And so yeah. I don't check it for a long time. So unfortunately extra environmentalist Facebook, not as active as it used to be, but on Twitter, we're getting a lot of great stuff. Like Scott sent in this awesome photo of him in an extra environmentalist t-shirt in Bhutan. And it's really amazing because we see this beautiful Bhutan village in the background, no doubt benefiting from Gloros national happiness instead of GDP, which is what Bhutan uses with an extra environmentalist t-shirt there. So thanks so much for that, Scott. And also Stacy, who tweeted us recently saying that she really enjoyed our stagnet skit with lots of puns and innuendos. Well, you know, that's what we do best in our skits sometimes. We also got a picture from Kevin out in California who was hanging out with Sandor Katz, a guy that we've interviewed on this show before. And he sent us a picture with his T-shirt as well. He posted that on the Facebook page. We love getting listener photos. If you put it on Facebook, I probably won't see it, but Seth will see it. So as long as Seth locks down the Facebook... Facebook. I'll I'll lock down the Twitter so we'll get them both covered. And so all of the people who donate $30 or more not only get a t-shirt, but they also get a copy of the Occupy Finance Handbook provided to us by the Occupy Finance Group in New York. So we're very grateful to be sending those around. But speaking of finance, you go back to our podcast number 75 on positive money. In the second half of that show, we interviewed Brett Scott on his book, The Heretic's Guide to Global Finance, Hacking the Future of Money. But Brett sent us an email recently and said that a pirated e-version of his book is now available at bit.ly slash global finance guide. We'll include a link to that in our show notes. So basically take that link around, send it to people who might be looking for a critical guide to the financial sector. And if you want to be able to get up to speed on vocabulary to understand everything that's going on on financial television when they're talking about stuff and analyze that from a critical perspective, from the kinds of perspectives that we bring on the show and that our guests bring to the show, definitely check out that book. So if you haven't had a chance or money to buy that book, find the online version and take a look. So that link will be in the show notes. Thank you so much to everyone who's tuned in today and listened to yet another episode of The Extra Environmentalist. But the winter months are coming to a close and spring is right around the corner. Get ready for another exciting season of The Extra Environmentalist. You know how to make eggs? 
This is how they make eggs, okay? They genetically engineer two different types of chicken. One type of chicken is called a layer chick, just lays eggs, right? Then they have another type of chick called a broiler chick. This is a chicken they like pump up with a bunch of hormones. It has like huge breasts and legs, and that's the one they use for the meat. And I'm reading this, I'm like, well, what happens to the male layer chicks? They serve no purpose, right? They can't lay eggs, they, they can't be used for meat, what happens? They just get murdered in insane ways. Like, they'll take all the male layer chicks and they'll throw them into a big chicken wood chipper. Um, another thing they'll do is they'll put them in a big plastic vat and just put a lid on it and suffocate them to death. And yeah, it's a bummer. Like, none of us is into that. Like, we'd all check no on that box. But the problem is this kind of information, this kind of footage, it just hasn't been seen in the right context to elicit the kind of mass outrage that would actually result in some changes. You know, right now it's in these obscure documentaries or books or whatever, but what if it was in a different context? Like what if there was a CNN camera crew that did a raid at rapper Ja Rule's house and they saw he had a big plastic vat where he was just suffocating chickens to death? We'd all be like, Ja, you monster, what are you doing? And he'd be like, I'm sorry, I just wanted some eggs. I had to make ethical compromises in order to achieve economies of scale. It's murder. I feel like I gotta do that whole bit on a talk show or something. Cause whenever you do a bit like that on a talk show, the person always gets in touch with you. So I feel like I have to do it just so I can get that amazing phone call one day where it's just like, Aziz? Yeah, who is this? Ja Rule, baby. Saw the way you integrated me into that beat about factory farming in the egg industry. I never knew that shit. I'm never eating meat again. You know where I can get some more literature on this subject? Maybe a pamphlet on how to adjust to a vegan or vegetarian lifestyle? I'll put it on there. <laughs> Soon Jaw starts getting really passionate about the cause. He starts filming his own PSAs. Every day, millions of chickens are living in tiny cages the size of a piece of paper. They're shitting all over each other in these disease-ridden factory farms. This is the meat we're putting in our mouths. This is the meat we're putting in our children's mouths. If you think the government should properly regulate the meat industry, holla, holla. <laughs> Guys, if only you knew how long it's taken me to find the perfect stand-up bit to showcase my frustrations with the meat industry and my flawless Ja Rule impersonation, <laughs> then you'd know my struggle. episode number 86 of the Extra Environmentalist, our final podcast in the Slow Money National Gathering featuring Wendell Berry and also Douglas Gayton on the lexicon of sustainability. Either we are of the market or we are of the community. The, the local economy effort is an effort to shift from a, an economy based on competition in which the strongest take the most to a cooperative economy in which the risks and the benefits are democratically shared. Five years ago, we began asking ourselves, why is it so hard for people to actually buy according to their values when they go to the store? And equally, why is it so hard for producers who grow things, who make things, 
who have values that they've put into those products that they make many times with their own hands. Why is it so hard for them to convey those messages, those values, to the people that they would love to have find and buy their food? about to hear is mostly probably true. The names of the economies, economic philosophies, and people have been changed in order to protect the innocent. This is Stagnet, the adventures of Detective Hedge Romer. Where we last left our hero Hedge Romer, the evil brain and his henchman Pinky left him locked in a barroom closet while they sat outside, scheming their way to continue financing the oil boom. I've been in this closet for more than a month. It was dark and dank and damp and other metaphors for moisture. The rain hadn't stopped during the whole time. It's either the rain or a leaky toilet from upstairs. I wasn't sure. They'd been feeding me scraps of food to keep me alive. Here's your food, Roma. All the food was GMO, of course. The potatoes had eyes that saw everything. And the corn had ears that heard everything I said. And all the pen-raised pork they kept feeding me was hurting my soul. I've been trying to get out the only way I knew how, by digging a hole. Lucky for me, I carry my portable drilling rig with me everywhere I go. And I had set it up in an out-of-the-way part of the cell that nobody could see. Little did I know, the floor was reinforced steel and concrete. So far, everything I drilled had been turning up dry. Little did I know, I was in for a break. But the bar was also right next to some train tracks. And every day, a train would rumble past my window. The noise was deafening. The noise covered up my drilling and also carried hope. Hey, Brain, it's time for our 3 o'clock delivery of oil straight from the Bakken Shale. Get ready. (laughs) There was a chance today, just like every other day, that their plans could derail. Maybe nothing would happen, but maybe everything would happen. Hey, this train won't slow down. It's coming in too fast. This energy boom's about to blow. In today's news, we had a train explosion next to a local bar. Luckily, only a few people were injured with this massive explosion. We go live to our man on the street, who's alive at the explosion. Unfortunately, Jim, there's so many oil rail car explosions these days, all buildings next to a track that's carrying cracked oil has to have reinforced concrete, meaning that only people right next to the rail track were affected. The music kept playing on in this bar like nothing had happened. Back to you in the studio. noise that sounded like a hippopotamus giving birth. It was deafening. The wall of myself crashed down, leaving open air and the taste of freedom on my lips. I was free and clear. I could go, but I needed to find a clue. Making my way out of my cell, I saw Pinky laying on the ground unconscious. 
his iWatch glimmering in the low evening light. By some miracle, the battery was still charged. I reached out and plucked the watch from his outstretched wrist. It had a direct connection to Brain's iPhone, holding all the secrets of the oil industry. Quickly, I scrolled through. Brain had been participating in a number of medical studies. His heart rate was elevated. His blood pressure was low. And this is for a dog. His health had gone to the dogs. He'd been eating way too many bones. He'd had one too many nights, staying up late, howling at the moon, and had been barking up too many of the wrong trees. Insert additional dog puns here. Brain's iPhone had been connected to the secret databases of world fracking industry. It was easy to download lots of information that would be helpful in my search. I was loaded with material. It was time to head back home. I took the red eye home and went directly to IMF's office. <laughs> What took you so long? Sometimes I move fast, but sometimes I like to take it slow so I can investigate very deeply. I, uh, we were starting to get worried. What'd you dig up? Her eyes looked around as if expecting someone else. I found exactly what I was looking for. I tossed the eye watch onto the table. The battery's dead. What happened? It's been more than 18 hours, and who knows what connector this thing takes to charge. We'll take this back to the lab. Get her fingers inside. See what turns up. I knew that watch was in good hands. From behind her desk, she pulled out a manila folder, crease at one edge, and with writing across the top. What's that, I said. This is our case file. The watch goes in here. You did a good job, Hedge. You're part of the team, but everyone on the team needs a code name. What's yours? I looked down for a second, then I looked back up. We're going to call you Friday, because that's the day I found you. But all our agents' names are color-coded. What's your codename's color? Black, like my heart. Welcome to the team, Agent Black Friday. My life as a secret agent had begun. Black Friday would be a day I'd remember forever. So, IMF, what's the next market I can crash? Some tips came in while you were away. There's an oil rig in the Gulf where the workers never sleep. You think it's a clue? A zombie oil rig? I'm intrigued. Tell me more. That's all we know. You're going to have to give us more. The city was black and dark. The heat wave had rolled in, and the air conditioners were cranking. Under a moonless sky, the stars shone down on an empty city, a city where no one slept, and zombie oil workers ran rampant. It was a job for Romer. Hedge Romer. Stagnant, the adventures of Hedge Roma, the economic stagnation detective, will return next season when he investigates the zombie worker oil rig. Until then, look for your special edition Hedge Roma toys in your grocery store's cereal box aisle as part of a complete breakfast.